Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks so much for joining me. While my normal format is for short stories, I've had a number of requests for longer stories as well, so tonight we begin a longer work that will be presented in four parts. Our author this evening is the great Austrian author, novelist, essayist, biographer, and playwright Stefan Zweig. He lived from 1881 to 1942, and during his lifetime he enjoyed enormous popularity and was perhaps the most widely translated author in the world. Most of his works are still in print, still enjoyed by a wide public. The Burning Secret is set in an Austrian resort hotel in the 1920s. This is a story about coming of age. It is about a 12-year-old boy, Edgar, who, after a series of events in a short period of time, is driven toward maturity. I hope you'll find, as I have, that Stefan Zweig is a great storyteller and an extraordinary observer of human psychology and motivation. The Burning Secret by Stefan Zweig Chapter 1 The Partner The train, with a shrill whistle, pulled into Zemmering. For a moment the black coaches stood still in the silvery light of the uplands to eject a few vivid human figures and to swallow up others. Exacerbated voices called back and forth. Then, with a puffing and a chugging and another shrill shriek, the dark train clattered into the opening of the tunnel, and once more the landscape stretched before the view, unbroken in all its wide expanse, the background swept clean by the moist wind. One of the arrivals, a young man pleasantly distinguished by his good dress and elastic walk, hurried ahead of the others and entered one of the hotel buses. The horses took the steep road leisurely. Spring was in the air. Up in the sky floated the white shifting clouds of May and June, light, sportive young creatures, playfully coursing the blue path of heaven, suddenly dipping and hiding behind the mountains, embracing and running away, crumpling up like handkerchiefs, elongating into gauzy scarfs, and ending their play by roguishly perching white caps on the mountain tops. There was unrest below, too, in the wind, which shook the lean trees still wet from the rain, and set their limbs a-groaning softly, and brought down a thousand shining drops. Sometimes a cool breath of snow descended from the mountains, and there was a feeling of the air both balmy and cutting. All things in the atmosphere and on the earth were in motion and astir with the ferment of impatience. The horses tossed their heads and snorted as they now trotted down a descent, the sound of their bells jingling far ahead of them. On arriving at the hotel, the young man made straight for the registry and looked over the list of guests. He was disappointed. "'What the deuce have I come here for?' he thought in vexation. "'Stuck way up here on top of the mountain, all alone? No company? Why, it's worse than the office. I must have come either too early or too late. I never do have luck with my holidays. Not a single name do I know. If only there was a woman or two here to pick up a flirtation with, even a perfectly innocent one, if it must be.' just to keep the weak from being too utterly dismal. The young man, a baron not very high up in the country's nobility, held a government position, and had secured this short vacation not because he required it particularly, but because his colleagues had all got a week off in spring, and he saw no reason for making a present of his week off to the government. Although not without inner resources, he was a thoroughly social being, his sociability being the very quality for which his friends liked him and for which he was welcomed in all circles. He was quite conscious of his inability to stay by himself, and had no inclination to meet himself, as it were, but rather avoided his own company, feeling not the least urge to become intimately acquainted with his own soul. He knew he required contact with other beings to kindle his talents and stir up the warmth and exuberance of his spirits. Alone he was like a match in a box, frosty and useless. He paced up and down the hall, completely out of sorts, stopping now and then irresolutely to turn the leaves of the magazines, or to glance at the newspapers, or to strike up a waltz on the piano in the music-room. Finally 
he sat down in a sulk and watched the growing dusk and the gray mist steal in patches between the fir-trees. After a long, vain, fretful hour, he took refuge in the dining-room. As yet only a few of the tables were occupied. He took them in at a swift glance. No use. No one he knew except—he responded to the greeting lifelessly—a gentleman to whom he had spoken on the train, and farther off a familiar face from the metropolis. No one else. Not a single woman to promise even a momentary adventure. He became more and more impatient and out of sorts. Being a young man favored with a handsome face, he was always prepared for a new experience. He was of the sort of men who are constantly on the lookout for an opportunity to plunge into an adventure for the sake of its novelty, yet whom nothing surprises because, forever lying in wait, they have calculated every possibility in advance. Such men never overlook any element of the erotic. The very first glance they cast at a woman is a probe into the sensual, a searching, impartial probe that knows no distinction between the wife of a friend or the maid who opens the door to her house. One rarely realizes, in using the ready-made word woman-hunter, which we toss in contempt at such men, how true the expression is and how much of faithful observation it implies. In their watchful alertness all the passionate instincts of the chase are afire, the stalking, the excitement, the cruel cunning. They are always at their post, always ready and determined to follow the tracks of an adventure up to the very brink of the precipice, always loaded with passion, not with the passion of a lover, but with the cold, calculating, dangerous passion of a gambler. Some of them are doggedly persevering, their whole life shaping itself from this expectancy into one perpetual adventure. Each day is divided for them into a hundred little sensual experiences, a passing look, a flitting smile, an accidental contact of the knees, and each year into a hundred such days in which the sensual experience constitutes the ever-flowing, life-giving, and quickening source of their existence. There was no partner for a game here. That the baron's experienced eye instantly detected. And there is nothing more exasperating than for a player with cards in his hands, conscious of his ability, to be sitting at the green table vainly awaiting a partner. The baron called for a newspaper, but merely ran his eyes down the columns fretfully. His thoughts were crippled, and he stumbled over the words. Suddenly he heard the rustling of a dress, and a woman's voice saying in a slightly vexed tone, Mais tais-toi donc, Edgar. Her accent was affected. A tall, voluptuous figure in silk crackled by his table, followed by a small, pale boy in a black velvet suit. The boy eyed the baron curiously as the two seated themselves at a table reserved for them opposite to him. The child was making evident efforts to be correct in his behavior, but propriety seemed to be out of keeping with the dark, restless expression of his eyes. The lady—the young man's attention was fixed upon her only—was very well groomed and dressed with conspicuous elegance. She was a type that particularly appealed to the baron, a Jewess with a somewhat opulent figure, not quite past her prime, and evidently of a passionate nature like his, yet sufficiently experienced to hide her temperament behind a veil of dignified melancholy. He could not see her eyes, but was able to admire the lovely curve of her eyebrows arching clean and well-defined above a nose delicate yet nobly curved in giving her face distinction. It was her nose that betrayed her race. Her hair, in keeping with everything else about her, was remarkably luxuriant. Her beauty seemed to have grown sated and boastful, with the sure sense of the wealth of admiration it had evoked. She gave her order in a very low voice, and told the boy to stop making a noise with his fork, this with apparent indifference to the baron's cautious, stealthy gaze. She seemed not to observe his look, though, as a matter of fact, it was his keen, alert vigilance that had made her constrained. A flash lit up the gloom of the baron's face. His nerves responded to an underground current, his muscles tautened, his face straightened up, fire came to his eyes. 
He was not unlike the women who require a masculine presence to bring out their full powers. He needed the stimulation of sex completely to energize his faculties. The hunter in him scented the prey. His eyes tried to challenge hers, and her glance crossed his, but waveringly, without ever giving an occasional relaxation of the muscles around her mouth, as if in an incipient smile, but he was not sure, and the very uncertainty of it aroused him. The one thing that held out promise was her constant looking away from him, which argued both resistance and embarrassment. Then, too, the conversation she kept up with her child encouraged him, being obviously designed for show, while her outward calm, he felt, was forced and quite superficial, actually indicating the commencement of inner agitation. He was a quiver. The play had begun. He made his dinner last a long while, and for a full half-hour, almost steadily, he kept the woman fixed with his gaze until it had traveled over every line of her face and touched unseen every spot of her body. Outside, the darkness fell heavily, the woods groaned as if in childish fear of the large, rain-laden clouds stretching out gray hands after them. The shadows deepened in the room, and the silence seemed to press the people closer together. Under the dead weight of the stillness, the baron clearly noted that the mother's conversation with her son became still more constrained and artificial, and would soon, he was sure, cease altogether. He resolved upon an experiment. He rose and went to the door slowly, looking past the woman at the prospect outside. At the door he gave a quick turn, as if he had forgotten something, and caught her looking at him with keen interest. That titillated him. He waited in the hall. Presently she appeared, holding the boy's hand, and paused for a while to look through some magazines and show the child a few pictures. The baron walked up to the table with a casual air, pretending to hunt for a periodical. His real intention was to probe deeper below the moist sheen of her eyes, and perhaps even begin a conversation. The woman instantly turned away and tapped the boy's shoulder. "'Viens, Edgar, au lit!' She rustled past the baron. He followed her with his eyes, somewhat disappointed. He had counted upon making the acquaintance that very evening— her brusque manner was disconcerting. However, there was a fascination in her resistance, and the very uncertainty added zest to the chase. At all events, he had found a partner, and the play could begin. CHAPTER Two, INSTANT FRIENDSHIP The next morning, on entering the hall, the baron saw the son of the unknown beauty engaged in eager conversation with the two elevator boys, to whom he was showing pictures in a book by Du Chaillu. His mother was not with him, probably not having come down from her room yet. The baron took his first good look at the boy. He seemed to be a shy, undeveloped, nervous little fellow, about twelve years old. His movements were jerky, his eyes dark and restless, he made the impression, so often produced by children of his age, of being startled, as if he had just been roused out of sleep and placed in strange surroundings. His face didn't altogether lack good looks, but its character was as yet unformed. The struggle between childhood and young manhood seemed just about to be setting in. Everything in him so far was like dough that had been kneaded but not formed into a loaf. Nothing was expressed in clean lines, everything was blurred and unsettled. He was at that awkward age when clothes do not fit, and sleeves and trousers hang slouchily, and there is no vanity to prompt care of one's appearance. The child made a rather pitiful impression as he wandered about the hotel aimlessly. He got in everybody's way. He would plague the porter with questions and then be shoved aside, for he would stand in the doorway and obstruct the passage. Apparently there were no other children for him to play with, and in his child's need to chatter he would try to attach himself to one or the other of the hotel attendants. When they had time they would answer him, but the instant an adult came along they would stop talking and refuse to pay him any more attention. 
It interested the Baron to watch the child, and he looked on smiling as the unhappy little creature inspected everything and everybody curiously, while he himself was universally avoided as a nuisance. Once the Baron intercepted one of his curious looks. His black eyes instantly fell when he saw himself observed, and hid behind lowered lids. The Baron was amused. The boy actually began to interest him, and it flashed into his mind that he might be made to serve as the speediest means for bringing him and his mother together. He could overcome his shyness since it proceeded from nothing but timidity. At any rate, he would give it a try. So when Edgar strolled out of the door to pet, in his child's need of tenderness, the pinkish nostrils of one of the bus horses, the Baron followed him. Edgar was certainly unlucky. The driver chased him away rather roughly. Insulted and bored, he stood about aimlessly again, with a vacant, rather melancholy expression in his eyes. The Baron now addressed him. "'Well, young man, how do you like it here?' he attempted a tone of jovial ease. The child turned fairly purple and looked up in actual alarm, drawing his arms close to his body and twisting and turning in embarrassment. For the first time in his life a stranger was the one to address him, and not he the stranger. "'Oh!' he managed to stammer out, choking over the last words. "'Thank you. I, I, I like it.' "'You do?' "'I'm surprised,' the Baron laughed. "'It's a dull place, especially for a young man like you. What do you do with yourself all day long?' Edgar was too confused to give a ready answer. Could it be true that this stranger, this elegant gentleman, was trying to pick up a conversation with him? With him, when nobody else wanted to bother? It made him both shy and proud. He pulled himself together with difficulty. "'I read, and we do a lot of walking. Sometimes we go out driving, mother and I. I am here to get well. I was sick. I must be out in the sunshine a lot,' the doctor said." Edgar spoke the last with great assurance. Children are always proud of their ailments. The danger they are in makes them more important, they know, in the eyes of their elders. "'Yes, the sun is good for you. It will tan your cheeks. But you oughtn't to be standing round the whole day long. A fellow like you ought to be on the go, running, jumping, playing, full of spirits, and up to mischief, too. It strikes me you are too well behaved.' You look too serious with that big fat book under your arm. When I think of the kind of fellow I was at your age, I was a regular little daredevil, and every evening I came home with my trousers torn. Don't be too serious. Edgar could not help smiling, and the consciousness of his own smile removed his fear. Now he was anxious to say something in reply, but it seemed self-assertive and impudent to answer this affable stranger who spoke to him in such a friendly way. He never had been forward and was easily abashed, so that now he was torn between happiness and embarrassment. He would have liked to continue the conversation, but nothing occurred to him. Luckily, the great yellow St. Bernard belonging to the hotel came up and sniffed at both of them and submitted to being petted. "'Do you like dogs?' asked the Baron. "'Oh, very much. Grandma has one at her villa in Baden.' When we stay there he's with me the whole time, but that's only in the summer when we go visiting. We have lots of dogs at home on our estate, a full two dozen, I believe. If you behave yourself here I'll make you a present of one, brown with white ears, a puppy still. Would you like to have it? The child blushed with pleasure. Oh, yes! The words fairly burst from his lips in an access of eagerness. Then he caught himself up and stammered in distress and as if frightened. But mother won't allow me to have a dog. She says she won't keep a dog in the house. It's too much of a nuisance. The Baron smiled. The conversation had at last come round to the mother. Is your mother so strict? The child reflected and looked up at him for an instant as if to find out whether this stranger was to be trusted on such slight acquaintance. "'No,' he finally answered cautiously, "'she's not strict, and since I've been sick she lets me do anything I want. Maybe she'll even let me have a dog. Shall I ask her?' 
"'Oh, yes, please do,' Edgar cried delightedly. "'If you do, I'm sure she'll give in. "'What does he look like? "'White ears, you said. "'Can he fetch? "'He can do all sorts of tricks.' The baron had to smile at the sparkle of Edgar's eyes. It had been so easy to kindle that light in them. All at once the child's constraint dropped away, and his natural enthusiasm, kept in check till then by fear, bubbled over. In a flash the timid child of a minute before turned into a boisterous lad. If only his mother is transformed so quickly, the baron thought, if only she shows so much ardor behind her reserve. Edgar went at him with a thousand questions. What's the dog's name? Caro. Caro! he cried happily, somehow having to answer every word with a laugh of delight, so intoxicated was he with the unexpectedness of having someone take him up as a friend. The baron, amazed at his own quick success, resolved to strike while the iron was hot, and invited the boy to take a walk with him. Edgar, who for weeks had been starving for company, was delighted at the suggestion. During the walk the baron questioned him, as if quite by the way, about a number of apparent trifles, and Edgar in response blurted all the information he was seeking, telling him everything he wanted to know about the family. Edgar was the only son of a lawyer in the metropolis, who evidently came of a wealthy middle-class Jewish family. By clever roundabout inquiries the baron promptly elicited that Edgar's mother had expressed herself as by no means delighted with her stay in Zemmering and had complained of the lack of congenial company. He even felt he might infer from the evasive way in which Edgar answered his question as to whether his mother wasn't very fond of his father that their marital relations were none of the happiest. He was almost ashamed at having been able to extract these family secrets from the unsuspecting child, for Edgar, very proud that anything he had to say could interest a grown-up person, fairly pressed confidences upon his new friend. His child's heart beat with pride, the baron had put his arm on his shoulder while they were walking, to be seen in such close intimacy with a man, and gradually he forgot he was a child and talked quite unconstrainedly, as if to an equal. From his conversation it was quite clear that he was a bright boy, in fact a bit too precocious, as are most sickly children who spend much time with their elders, and his likes and dislikes were too marked. He took nothing calmly or indifferently. Every person or thing was discussed with either passionate enthusiasm or a hatred so intense as to distort his face into a mean, ugly look. There was something wild and jerky about his manner, accentuated perhaps by the illness he was just recovering from, so that his conversation had a fanatical fire about it. His awkwardness seemed to proceed from the painfully suppressed fear of his own passion. By the end of half an hour the baron was already holding the boy's throbbing heart in his hands. It is so infinitely easy to deceive children, those unsuspecting creatures whose love is so rarely courted. All the baron needed to do was to transport himself back to his own childhood, and the talk flowed quite naturally. Edgar felt himself in the presence of an equal, and within a few minutes had lost all sense of distance between them, and was perfectly at ease conscious of nothing but bliss at having so unexpectedly found a friend in this lonely place. And what a friend! Forgotten were his young friends in Vienna, those little boys with their high-pitched voices and their juvenile chatter. This one hour had swept them away. All his enthusiasm and passion now belonged to this new, this big friend of his. On parting, the baron invited him to take a walk with him again the next morning. Edgar's heart expanded with pride, and, when from a little distance away the baron waved to him like a real playmate, it was probably the happiest moment in his life. It is so easy to deceive children. The baron smiled as he looked after the boy dashing away. The go-between had been won. Edgar, he knew, would bore his mother with stories of the wonderful baron, and would repeat every word he had said. 
At this he recalled complacently how cleverly he had woven in some compliments for the mother's consumption. "'Your beautiful mother,' he had always said. There was not the faintest shadow of doubt in his mind that the communicative boy would never rest until he had brought him and his mother together. No need now to stir a finger in order to shorten the distance between himself and the unknown beauty. He could dream away idly and feast his eyes on the landscape, for a child's eager hands, he knew, were building him a bridge to her heart. Chapter 3 The Trio The plan, as appeared only an hour later, proved to be excellent. It worked without a hitch. The Baron chose to be a little late in entering the dining-room, and when Edgar saw him he jumped up from his seat and greeted him with a broad grin and waved to him, at the same time tugging at his mother's sleeve, saying something to her hastily, and pointing conspicuously to the Baron. His mother reproved him for his too lively behavior. She blushed and showed genuine discomfort, but could not help yielding to the boy's insistence, and gave a glance across at the Baron. This the Baron instantly seized upon as the pretext for a deferential bow. The acquaintance was made. The lady had to acknowledge his bow. Yet from now on she kept her head bent still lower over her plate, and took care throughout the rest of the meal to avoid looking over at the Baron again. Not so Edgar. Every minute or two he turned his eyes on the Baron, and once he even tried to speak to him across the two tables, an impropriety which his mother promptly checked with a severe rebuke. As soon as dinner was over, Edgar was told he must go straight to bed, and an eager whispering began between him and his mother, which resulted in a concession to the boy. He was allowed to go to the Baron and say good night to him. The Baron said a few kind words, and so set the child's eyes ablaze again. Here the Baron rose, and, in his adroit way, as if it were the most natural thing in the world, stepped over to the table and congratulated his neighbor upon her bright, intelligent son. He told her what a pleasant time he had spent with him that morning. Edgar beamed, and then inquired about the boy's health. On this point he asked so many detailed questions that the mother was compelled to reply, and so was drawn irresistibly into a conversation. Edgar listened to it all in a state of joy and pride. The Baron gave his name to the lady. The high sound of it, it seemed to him, made an impression on her. At any rate, she lost her extreme reserve, though retaining perfect dignity. In a few minutes she took her leave on account of Edgar's having to go to bed, as she said by way of a pretext. Edgar protested he was not sleepy and would be happy to stay up the whole night, but his mother remained obdurate and held out her hand by way of good night to the Baron, who shook hands with her most respectfully. Edgar did not sleep well that night. A chaos of happiness and childish despair filled his soul. Something new had come to him that day. For the first time he had played a part in the life of adults. In his half-awake state he forgot that he was a child, and all at once felt himself a grown-up man. Brought up an only child and often ailing, he had never made friends. His parents, who paid little attention to him, and the servants had been the only ones to meet his craving for tenderness. The power of love is not properly gauged if it is estimated only by the object that inspires it, if the tension preceding it is not taken into account, that gloomy space of disillusionment and loneliness which stretches in front of all the great events of the heart. In Edgar there had been a heavily fraught, unexpended emotion lying in wait, which now burst out and rushed to meet the first human being who seemed to deserve it. He lay in the dark, happy and dazed. He wanted to laugh, but had to cry, for he loved the Baron as he had never loved friend, father, mother, or even God.' 
all the immature passion of his ending boyhood wreathed itself about his mental vision of the man whose very name had been unknown to him a few hours before. He was wise enough not to be disturbed by the peculiar, unexpected way in which the new friendship had been formed. What troubled him was the sense of his own unworthiness and insignificance. "'Am I fit company for him?' he plagued himself. "'I, a little boy, twelve years old, who has to go to school still, and am sent off to bed at night before anyone else? What can I mean to him? What have I to offer him?' The painful sense of his impotence to show his feelings in some way or other made him most unhappy. On other occasions when he had taken a liking for a boy, the first thing he had done was to offer to share his stamps and marbles and jacks. Now such childish possessions, which only the day before had still had vast importance and charm in his eyes, had depreciated in value. They seemed silly. He disdained them. He couldn't offer such things to his new friend. What possible way was there for him to express his feelings? The sense that he was small, only half a being, a mere child of twelve, grew upon him and tortured him more and more. Never before had he so vehemently cursed his childhood, or longed so heartily to wake up in the morning the person he had always dreamed of being, a man, big and strong, grown up like the others. His restless thoughts were mixed with the first bright dreams of the new world of manhood. Finally he fell asleep with a smile on his lips, but his sleep was constantly broken by the anticipation of the next morning's appointment. At seven o'clock he awoke with a start, fearful that he was too late already. He dressed hastily and astonished his mother when he went in to say good morning, because she had always had difficulty getting him out of bed. Before she could question him, he was out of her room again. With only the one thought in his mind, not to keep his friend waiting, he wandered about downstairs in the hotel, even forgetting to eat breakfast. At half-past nine the baron came sauntering through the lobby with his easy air and no indication that anything had been troubling him. He, of course, had completely forgotten the appointment for a walk, but he acted as though he were quite ready to keep his promise when the boy came rushing at him so eagerly. He took Edgar's arm and paced up and down the lobby with him leisurely. Edgar was radiant, although the baron gently but firmly refused to start on the walk at once. He seemed to be waiting for something. Every once in a while he gave a nervous glance at one of the various doors. Suddenly he drew himself up. Edgar's mother had entered the hall. She responded to the baron's greeting and came up to him with a pleasant expression on her face. Edgar had not told her about the walk. It was too precious a thing to talk about. But now the baron mentioned it, and she smiled in approval. Then he went on to invite her to come along, and she was not slow in accepting. That made Edgar sulky. He gnawed at his lips. How annoying of his mother to have come into the lobby just then! The walk belonged to him and him alone. To be sure, he had introduced his friend to his mother, but only out of courtesy. He had not meant to share him with anybody. Something like jealousy began to stir in him when he observed the baron's friendliness to his mother. On the walk, the dangerous sense the child had of his importance and sudden rise to prominence was heightened by the interest the two adults showed in him. He was almost the exclusive subject of their conversation. His mother expressed rather hypocritical solicitude on account of his pallor and nervousness, while the baron kept saying it was nothing to worry about, and extolled his young friend's good manners and pleasant ways. It was the happiest hour of Edgar's life. Rights were granted him that he had never before been allowed. He was permitted to take part in the conversation without a prompt keep-quiet Edgar. He could even express bold desires for which he would have been rebuked before. No wonder the deceptive feeling that he was grown up began to flourish in his imagination. In his bright dreams childhood already lay behind him like a suit he had outgrown and cast off. At the mother's invitation the baron took his midday meal at their table. She was growing friendlier all the time. 
The vis-a-vis was now a companion, the acquaintanceship a friendship. The trio was in full swing, and the three voices, the woman's, the man's, and the child's, mingled in harmony. CHAPTER Four, THE ATTACK The impatient hunter felt the time had come to creep up on his game. The three-sidedness of the sport annoyed him, and so did the tone of it. To sit there and chat was rather pleasant, but he was after more than mere talk. Being sociable, with the mask it puts over desire, always he knew, always checks eroticism between man and woman. Words lose their ardor, the attack its fire. Despite their conversation together on indifferent matters, Edgar's mother must never forget his real object, of which he was quite convinced she was already aware. That his efforts to catch this woman were not to prove in vain seemed very probable. She was at the critical age when a woman begins to regret having remained faithful to a husband she has never truly loved, and when the twilight of her beauty calls for a final urgent choice between behaving like a mother or like a woman. The life, whose questions seem to have been answered long before, becomes a problem again, and for the last time the magnetic needle of the will wavers between the hope for an intense love experience and ultimate resignation. The woman has a dangerous decision to confront, whether she will live her own life or that of her children, whether she will be a woman first or a mother first. The baron, who was very observant in these matters, thought that he discerned in Edgar's mother this very vacillation between passion to live her own life and readiness to sacrifice her desires. In conversation she always omitted any mention of her husband. Evidently he satisfied nothing but her bare external needs, and not the snobbishness that an aristocratic way of life had excited in her. And as for her son, she knew precious little of the child's soul. A shadow of boredom, wearing the veil of melancholy in her dark eyes, lay over her life and clouded her sensuality. The baron resolved to act quickly, yet at the same time to avoid any appearance of haste, like an angler who plays the fish by dangling and withdrawing the bait, he would affect a show of indifference and let himself be courted while he was the one that was actually doing the courting. He would put on an air of haughtiness and bring into sharp relief the difference in their social ranks. There was fascination in the idea of getting possession of that lovely, voluptuous creature simply by stressing his pride, by mere externals, by the use of a high-sounding aristocratic name and the adoption of a cold, proud manner. The hot pursuit began to excite him, so he forced himself to be cautious. He remained in his room the whole afternoon, filled with the pleasant consciousness of being looked for and missed. But his absence was felt not so much by the woman, upon whom the effect was intended, as by Edgar. To the wretched child it was simple torture. The whole afternoon he felt helpless and lost. With the obstinate faithfulness of a boy, he waited long, long hours for his friend. To have gone away or done anything by himself would have seemed like a crime against their friendship, and he loafed the time away in the hotel corridors, his heart growing heavier and heavier as each moment passed. After a while his heated imagination began to dwell on a possible accident or an insult he might unwittingly have offered his friend. He was on the verge of tears from impatience and anxiety, so that when the baron came in to dinner in the evening he received a brilliant greeting. Edgar jumped up, and without paying any attention to his mother's cry of rebuke or the astonishment of the other diners, rushed at the baron and threw his thin little arms about him. "'Where have you been? Where have you been? We've been looking for you everywhere!' The mother's face reddened at hearing herself included in the search. "'Sois sage, Edgar, assieds-toi,' she said rather severely. She always spoke French to him, though it by no means came readily to her tongue, and if any but the simplest things were to be said, she invariably floundered. Edgar obeyed and went back to his seat, 
but kept on questioning the baron. Edgar, his mother interposed, don't forget that the baron can do whatever he wants to do. Perhaps our company bores him. Now she included herself, and the baron noted with satisfaction that the rebuke directed to the child was really an invitation for a compliment to herself. The hunter in him awakened. He was intoxicated, thoroughly excited at having so quickly come upon the right tracks and at seeing the game so close to the muzzle of his gun. His eyes sparkled, his blood shot through his veins. The words fairly bubbled from his lips with no conscious effort on his part. Like all men with pronouncedly erotic temperaments, he did twice as well, was twice himself when he knew a woman liked him, as some actors take fire when they feel that their audience, the breathing mass of humanity in front of them, is completely under their spell. Naturally an excellent raconteur, with great skill in graphic description, he now surpassed himself. Besides, he drank several glasses of champagne, ordered in honor of the new friendship. He told of hunting big game in India, where he had gone at the invitation of an English nobleman. The theme was well chosen. The conversation had necessarily to be about indifferent matters, but this subject, the baron felt, would excite the woman as would anything exotic and unattainable by her. The one, however, upon whom the greater charm was exercised was Edgar. His eyes glowed with enthusiasm. He forgot to eat or drink, and stared at the storyteller as if to snatch the words from his lips with his eyes. He had never expected actually to see a man who, in his own person, had experienced those tremendous things which he read about in his books—tiger hunts, brown men, Hindus, and the terrible juggernaut which crushed thousands of men under its wheels. Until then he had thought such men did not really exist, and believed in them no more than in fairyland. A certain new and great feeling expanded his chest. He could not remove his eyes from his friend, and stared with bated breath at the hands across the table that had actually killed a tiger. Scarcely did he dare to ask a question, and when he ventured to speak it was with a feverish tremor in his voice. His lively imagination drew the picture for each story. He saw his friend mounted high on an elephant, caparisoned in purple, brown men to the right and to the left wearing rich turbans, and then suddenly the tiger leaping out of the jungle with bared teeth and burying its claws in the elephant's trunk. Now the baron was telling about something even more interesting, how elephants were caught by a trick. Old, domesticated elephants were used to lure the young, wild, high-spirited ones into the enclosure. The child's eyes flashed. Then, as though a knife came cutting through the air right down between him and the baron, his mother said, glancing at the clock, Neuf heures, au lit. Edgar turned white. To be sent to bed is dreadful enough to grown children at any time, it is the most patent humiliation in adult company, the proclamation that one is still a child, the stigma of being small and needing a child's sleep. But how much more dreadful at so interesting a moment when the chance of listening to such wonderful things would be lost! Just this one story, mother, just this one story about the elephants. He was about to plead, but bethought himself quickly of his new dignity. He was a grown-up person. One attempt was all he ventured, but that night his mother was peculiarly strict. No, it's already late. Just go up. Sois sage, Edgar. I'll tell you the story over again exactly the way the baron tells it to me. Edgar lingered a moment. Usually his mother went upstairs with him. But he wasn't going to beg her in front of his friend— his childish pride made him want to give his pitiful withdrawal somewhat, at least, the appearance of being voluntary. "'Will you really? Everything? All about the elephants and everything else?' "'Yes, Edgar, everything.' "'Tonight still?' "'Yes, yes. But go on, go to bed now.' Edgar was amazed that he was able to shake hands with the baron and his mother without blushing. The sobs were already choking his throat." 
The Baron ran his hand good-naturedly through his hair and pulled it down on his forehead. That brought a forced smile to the boy's tense features, but the next instant he had to hurry to the door, or they would see the great tears well over his eyelids and trickle down his cheeks. Chapter 5 The Elephants Edgar's mother stayed at table with the Baron a while longer, but the two no longer spoke of elephants or hunting. An indefinable embarrassment instantly sprang up between them, and a faint sultriness descended upon their conversation. After a time they went out into the hall and seated themselves in a corner. The Baron was more brilliant than ever. The woman was a little heated by her two glasses of champagne, so that the conversation quickly took a dangerous turn. The Baron was not what is called exactly handsome. He was simply young, and had a manly look in his dark-brown, energetic, boyish face, and he charmed her with his fresh, uninhibited movements. She liked looking at him at such close range, and was no longer afraid to encounter his eyes. Gradually there crept into his language a boldness which vaguely disconcerted her. It was like a gripping of her body, and then a letting go, an intangible sort of desire which sent the blood rushing to her face. The next moment, however, he would laugh again, an easy, unconstrained, boyish laugh which made his little manifestations of desire seem like joking. Sometimes he said things she felt she ought to object to bluntly, but she was a natural-born coquette, and his trifling audacities only provoked in her the taste for more. She was carried away by his bold gaze, and at length got so far as to try to imitate him, answering his looks with little fluttering promises from her own eyes, and giving herself up to him in words and gestures. She permitted him to draw close to her, so that every now and then she felt the warm graze of his breath on her shoulders. Like all gamblers, the two forgot the passage of time, and became so absorbed that they started in surprise when the lights in the hall were turned off at midnight. The woman jumped up in response to the first impulse of alarm she had felt. In the same moment she realized to what audacious length she had ventured. It was not the first time she had played with fire, but now her instincts, all aroused, told her the game had come perilously close to being in earnest. She shuddered inwardly at discovering that she no longer felt quite secure, that something in her was slipping and gliding down into an abyss. Her head whirled with alarm, with slight intoxication from the champagne, and with the ring of the baron's ardent language in her ears. A dull dread came over her. She had experienced the same sort of dread several times before in similar dangerous moments, but it had never so overpowered her. This extreme dizziness was something she had never before experienced. "'Good night,' she said hastily. "'See you in the morning again.' She felt like running away, not so much from him as from the danger of the moment and from an odd, novel insecurity she felt within herself. The Baron held her hand in a tight but gentle grip and kissed it four or five times from the delicate tips of her fingers to her wrist. A little shiver went through her at the graze of his rough moustache on the back of her hand, and her blood ran warm and mounted to her head. Her cheeks glowed, there was a hammering at her temples, a wild, unreasoning fear made her snatch her hand away. "'Don't go, don't go,' the Baron pleaded in a whisper. But she was already gone, the awkwardness of her haste revealing plainly her fright and confusion. She was undergoing the excitement that the Baron wanted. She was all confused, one moment in awful dread that the man behind might follow her and put his arms around her, and the next instant regretting that he had not done so. In those few seconds the thing might have taken place that she had been dreaming of for years, the great adventure. She had always taken voluptuous delight in creeping up to the very edge of an adventure and then jumping back at the last moment, an adventure of the great and dangerous kind, not a mere fleeting flirtation. But the Baron was too proud to push his advantage now. Too assured of his victory, 
to take this woman like a robber in a moment of weakness and intoxication. A fair sportsman prefers his game to show fight and surrender quite consciously. The woman could not escape him. The virus he knew was already seething in her veins. She stopped on the landing above and pressed her hand to her throbbing heart. She had to rest a while. Her nerves were snapping. She heaved a great sigh, partly of relief at having escaped a danger, partly of regret. Her emotions were mixed, and all she was vividly conscious of was the whirl of her blood and a faint giddiness. With half-closed eyes she groped her way like a drunken woman to the door, and breathed with relief when she felt the cool doorknob in her hand. At last she was safe. She opened the door softly, and the next second started back in fright. Something had moved way back in the dark. In her excited state this was too much, and she was about to cry for help when a very, very sleepy voice came from within, saying, "'Is that you, mother? Goodness gracious, what are you doing here?' She rushed to the sofa, where Edgar was lying, curled up, trying to keep himself wide awake. She thought the child must be ill and needed attention. "'I waited for you so long, and then I fell asleep.' "'What were you waiting for?' you know, to hear about the elephants. Elephants? As she asked the question, Edgar's mother remembered her promise. She was to tell him all about the elephant hunts and the baron's other adventures that very night. And so the simple child had crept into her room, and in unquestioning faith had waited for her until he dropped asleep. The absurdity of it enraged her, or rather she was angry with herself, she heard a soft whisper of guilt and shame that she wanted to silence. "'Go to bed at once, you little brat!' she cried angrily. Edgar stared at her. Why was she so angry? He hadn't done anything wrong. But his very amazement only made her angrier. "'Go to bed at once!' she shouted in a rage because she felt how unjust she was being to the child. Edgar went without a word. He was dreadfully sleepy, and felt only in a blur that his mother had not kept her promise, and that somehow or other he was being treated meanly. Yet he did not rebel. His susceptibilities were dulled by sleepiness. Besides, he was angry with himself for having fallen asleep while waiting. "'Like a baby,' he said to himself in disgust, before dropping off to sleep again." Since the day before, he hated himself for being still a child. You've been listening to Part 1 of The Burning Secret by Stefan Zweig. Please join me next week for the second part. In the meantime, be well, be happy, please stay safe. All the best. 